is a case from the Shiroku. Fayan's substance and name. Introduction. Plenty has myriad virtues. Swept clear, there's not a single mote of dust. Detached from all forms, identical to all things. Taking a step atop a hundred foot pole. The universe in all directions is one's whole body. But tell me, where does it come from? The case. Monk asked Fayan, I hear that in the teachings there is a saying, from non-abiding basis are established all things. What is the non-abiding basis? Fayan said, Form arises before substantiation. Names arise from before naming. The verse. Eliminating footprints. Stopping communications. The white clouds are rootless. What color is the pure wind? Spreading the canopy of the sky. It has no mind. Holding earth. It has power. It clarifies the profound source of a thousand sages, making patterns for the ten thousand shapes, meeting for enlightenment in the atoms of all lands. Samantabhadra is everywhere. The gate of the tower opens, and everyone is Maitreya. So, in last Tesho, I talked a little bit about the importance of knowing how to meet teachings of the essential matters, such as Aikido and Zen. How to meet them, how to work with them. And I mentioned that we, we need to know how to go to the source of where these teachings come from. So instead of trying to emulate what we see or memorize what we hear and then regurgitate it or repeat it and then live vicariously through other people's understandings or other teachers, we have to verify on our own. I mean, we have to do the work that was done before us and we have to realize on our own what others have realized on their own, by themselves. So it's not to adapt, it's not to put on a hat, a mask, an idea. It's not to try to live by someone else's understanding. That won't do. Not only that it won't do, it will actually disintegrate the heart of the teachings, what it's about, or the way we need to uphold it. Right? So we have to give uh, rise to authentic 
expressions. And authentic means authentic. Right? Authentic means authentic. So before we can re give rise to authentic expression, we have to look at where we are not so authentic. How do we live our lives? How do we express ourselves? Is it authentic or is it about appeasing someone? Is it about adhering to something? Is it about following a dogmatic path? It, it actually very quickly can look like that if we don't pay attention. Because we are following something that looks very dogmatic. And that's one of the reasons why it feels so heavy at times. Because it feels as if we have to follow. And that won't do. Even if we do it for decades, it won't do. We're going to look like those who understand. But will we understand? Will we know how to live it? Right? So to not live vicariously to somebody else's understanding. Yeah, so we have to penetrate on our own, deeply, personally, and investigate. And what we need to investigate really is, is the fundamental question that lies at the inception of all religions. What is the source of this? What is the source of me? What, what am I? Right? What is it? And not to look for answers in books and lectures, but to look for the answers where it comes from. Or to look at the answer on the level of the question. Who is asking? Right? Hakuin, we just chanted, Hakuin talked about that, right? To verify on our own, to be the ones who verify. And if he says, if we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self. We just chanted that. So to turn inwardly and to verify, as long as we don't verify on our own, we have no choice but to follow someone else's understanding. Right? And we look for it because we don't trust ourselves. And then we look for a verification. With or without practice, even regardless of practice, how do, we, how do most people live their lives? Is it, not, is it not with looking at others for verification? Is it not with looking at our achievements, what we have amounted to, what we have, what we don't have? Why do we quantify? The only way is to stop looking for it elsewhere and turn things around completely and look at that one that is the one that is asking the question. which is really what, what gave rise to religion at first place. All religions. Not the way it's practiced. Not after it's been hijacked by us, 
and changed. So where does it come from? Where does it go back to? The questions are referring to the person, the circumstances, the environment, and essentially everything, really everything that comes into existence and then disappears back into wherever it came from. Everything. Because the person and the environment share the same source. And like anything else in the teachings, this statement is not something to buy or to look at and decide whether or not we agree with and then move on to something else. This statement is there for us to maybe challenge, actually. Why are you saying this? Why is it written? Why did the Buddha say it? What did he mean by that? I want to know. But what did he do to realize? Not that we have to follow his exact footsteps, and we shouldn't follow anybody's footsteps. <clears throat> but what we should do is raise, raise the question to such a level that it, that it becomes the most important thing in our lives. That it becomes everything we do in our lives. Otherwise, how can we penetrate anything? So how deeply do we, honestly, how deeply do we penetrate the questions? How can we do it when, when so much of our energy is taken by our obsession with ourselves? Our obsessions with our thoughts, with our feelings. Our obsession with amounting to something or with other people verifying us. So, so to, there's got to be a point that we venture away from expecting it to come from the outside, expecting others to give us something that we'll, we can hold on to, into not knowing, into venturing out on our own, into taking a chance, basically. We have to take a chance. When we have to venture out with only, only trust. That's the only thing we can rely on, actually. Right? Not what we think we will find, because we cannot rely on it, because we, we think we have not found it yet. But we have to rely on trusting that we are it. We just don't feel like that, which means our lives do not follow in alignment with that. You know, and, and as a teacher, I, I have this great privilege to talk to a lot of people. And it's a great privilege because I get to learn a lot about the practice, about how we as, as people practice, and about the difficulties about the challenges, about what gives rise to practice and what gets in the way of practice, which is actually one and the same. The agony of our lives leads to the question, 
but the agony of our lives also trap us. Right? So it has to do with what, what do we do with it? How do we deal with it? And one of the more common issues that people share is that, yeah, I can practice when things are good. I'll show up when things are fine, when I, I'm well rested and when my life follows a plan. The plan I have or had and it's fine and I'm good. Right? I'm well, well rested and I'm, my stomach is full and I'm good and now I can come and practice. But what happens when things start to fall apart? When the going gets tough, what happens? Well, the first thing that happens is that we realize, we see, or, or we get a glimpse of our, relation, our true relationship with the practice. Because that's the first thing that goes. Or that's the first thing that is put on the table to contemplate. I'll get back to you. I'll get back to practice. But now i got to deal with this. And that's more important than practice. It's how we think. And it's actually very natural to think this way. How could we not? Something take, takes priority, takes precedent. My life is, is, is messed up right now. I got to put all my energy in that. And then when I have some time, I'll go back to quote unquote practice. Right? That's, that's not, nothing to do with practice, that way of thinking. Right? But it happens, and it's okay that it happens. Actually, it's not okay or not okay. It just happens. And the question is, what do we do? Where do we, where do we chop it up? Where do we create divisions between what we think practice is and what we think our life is? And anything in between. And that's, this is what, what we need to examine before we can examine what is this about? What is the origin? What is the source of this? And it's not that those are two different studies because when we realize that the practice is everywhere, the practice is whatever it is we do, and that's the place in which we can do the investigation. It's the only place we can do the investigation of what this is. When it becomes chaotic, when I'm being pulled in all directions, that's the time. And that's probably the most conducive time to raise that question. Is it true? It's messy, but is it true? Or how true is it when it gets messy? What else is happening when things get messy? How do I deal with the mess? You know, because when we look at it this way, that actually is the only way to experience some inner shift. Something has to shift because when we feel that all directions are blocked, completely blocked. The only thing that's needed is an inner shift because it's not going to come from the outside, right? It's the outside that seems to be blocking us. So we cannot look at the outside and hope that 
we'll get lucky tomorrow and it will not block us. Because we may get lucky tomorrow, it doesn't block us. The following day, it does block us again. And then what? What do we verify? What do we go by? You know, the, the sense of heaviness that we feel when things get sticky does not come from the things or from the stickiness, although it seems this way. Where does it come from? Where do the things come from? Well, this is an extremely important point, obviously, because if we don't look at that, practice goes by the wayside, we're back to where we were, maybe even feeling worse because practice doesn't work, right? And it's also very important because it ties directly to Dogen's words of what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Right? Practicing based on the myriad things carrying out the self instead of practicing based on the self acting on the myriad things. When the self is acting on the myriad things, it's heavy. Well, sometimes not. It's true. Sometimes it feels great. But sometimes... It feels so burdensome, so challenging. How can I carry all this on my shoulders? Well, who says you have to carry it? Who gave that idea? Who gave us that idea that we are the ones that have to carry it? Rather than life is carrying you. Is it possible that we are actually being carried by life. Is it possible that life is there, shows up on a regular basis to support you? The earth is there to support you. Well, I don't have time for earth right now. I got better things to think about. So what happens? And then we narrow it down. Contract. So we have to look at it, and even and well, more so when it seems obscure, more so when it seems as if practice is not available, or I don't have time for it, or I have better things to do. That's the time. The teacher in this case, Spayan, which you may remember, from previous koans, 10th century Chinese Zen master, was the founder of one of the five schools of Zen. A school did not last that long, but still was very influential on the development of Zen and actually appears in many koans. I want to quote a little bit from John C.H. Wu, who writes about this school. Unlike the other houses of Zen, whose approach to supreme reality is mainly through an ex experiential realization of the inner self. The house of Fayan arrived at the same realization by opening its eyes to the unlimited horizons of the cosmos. 
In its vision, all things in the universe speak of the Absolute. There was nothing, there was nothing is not teaching. So we, we, speak, we speak of turning things inwardly, but turning things inwardly is not in opposition to observing reality. In fact, turning inwardly to verify the self is one and the same as looking at a tree or looking at a bird or observing nature and verifying that the I and the object or the subject, the object are actually one and the same. So by verifying this, the self, we verify the universe. By verifying the universe, we verify the self. Which opens it up. It's not me and my practice. And it's always available. There's nowhere that it's not speaking. Zwansha was one of the most important ancestors of this house, of this school. And he says that he may serve as a good uh, illustration of this point. There's a story of him one day was scheduled to give a talk. So he got on the platform, he mounted the platform. He used to have a higher platform to, to sit on and to speak from. And as soon as he sat on the platform, he heard the twittering of a swallow outside the hall. Thereupon he remarked, what a profound discourse on reality and a clear exposition of the Dharma. And then he retired from the platform as though signifying that his sermon was done. And his sermon was done because his sermon was not his sermon. Just happened to be at that time. And he recognized that no matter how many words he will utter, they will not be as powerful as the chirping of the swallow. So he remained quiet. And the style of Fayan Zen was similar to the Taoist teachings of Chuan Tzu, who said, Heaven and earth spring from the same root as myself, and all things are one with me. Very strong influence on their teachings at that time. In the introduction to this Quran says, detached from all forms, identical to all things. So what is it? What is this root that makes you, sky, the earth, the swallow, and everything else, identical? Where is the affinity? What is the affinity about? The affinity with all things, animate and inanimate. It's not in the shape, it's not in the function. We don't see similarity there, which means the eye is not going to give us the answer. 
the ear won't give us the answer in this way, right? Because it doesn't sound the same. So we have to look at where it comes from. We have to look at what it is based on. What, it is, what is it sitting on? What gives rise to all forms, to all sounds? Which is what the monk is asking. Right? He's, in this case, he's asking about a phrase from the Huayan Sutra. And he said to Fayan, I hear that in the teachings there is a saying, from non-abiding basis are established all things. What is this non-abiding basis? What is this origin? The non-abiding origin that gives rise to all things. All things that appear in our lives are established from non-fixed basis as it is the same. Physical bodies, likes, dislikes, emotions, family, friends, the earth, the sky, the birds, everything. Everything comes from a non abiding basis. And it doesn't differentiate between good and bad, it doesn't differentiate between what feels in alignment and what feels misaligned. What feels like practice and what doesn't feel like practice. All of it shares the same root. That's what it's saying. But again, so I was saying at the beginning, we have to we have to be curious. Really? How so? I want to see that. I want to feel that. I want to investigate. Right? And it is contrary to what we think or what we feel because we don't perceive ourselves and the environment in this way. Or at least we don't, in most cases, take the time to look and realize that it is this way. Because there's too much going on in our lives. Especially when it gets hectic. So who has time to verify the origin? Maybe when I retire. Right? Things do seem solid. Things do seem absolutely substantiated, real, firm, and give us the validity or the reasons to act the way we act, to feel the way we feel to feel stopped and blocked and hindered and discouraged because they're real. How real are they? What does it mean real? And precisely because of the solidity of our bodies and our lives, because of that, we have to look at it. Manjushri, the, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, once asked Vimalakirti, what is the basis of the body? Vimalakirti said, craving is the basis of the body. Manjushri then asked, what is the basis of craving? Vimalakirti said, 
False discrimination is the basis of craving. Manjushri said, what is the source of false discrimination? Vimalakirti said, erroneous thinking is the source of discrimination. And then Manjushri asked, what is the source of erroneous thinking? And Vimalakirti said, non-abiding is the basis. Manjushri said, well, what is the basis of non-abiding? And Vimalakirti looked at him and says, non-abiding has no basis. Manjushri, all things arise from this non-abiding root. That's it. There's nothing there, so there's nothing underneath that. And there's nothing that this does not include. But what else are you looking for? It's just that when we look, if we look in a, in a superficial way, we look and we look and we end up seeing thoughts, right? Underneath everything, there's going to be a thought, right? And then it seems as if thinking is the basis of all things. That's what the cult said, right? I think, therefore I am. It's actually a logical conclusion. Because there's always a thought somewhere in there. But what gives rise to thinking? And that's the next level. That's, that's the depth we have to look at. What gives rise to thinking? <coughs> Seng Zhao, Chinese Buddhist monk from fourth century, the disciple of uh, Kumala Jiva, said, the mind is like water. When it is still, there is reflection. When disturbed, no mirror. Muddled by folly and craving, fanned by misleading influences, it surges and bellows, bellows, never stopping for a moment. It's like trying to look at the flowing stream to see your appearance. It never falls. Yet we look for ourselves there. If you take the movement of mind as the basis, then existence is born, based on significations. When the reason completes its initial movement, there is no more basis. If you take nothingness as the basis, then existence is born based on nothingness. And then the thinking process takes that as itself. When he says, nothing is based on nothing, at this point, there is no more basis. So the basis is basisless. As long as we think that the basis is substantial, then we look for that, and we try to verify it based on our way of thinking, which is substantial or substance-based. But when there's nothing there, there's nothing upon which to rely. Actually, there's nothing upon which to rely. That statement is the good news. If I'm relying on nothing, all directions are wide open. 
if I'm relying on something, I am afraid that that thing will fall apart. I'm terrified because I put everything on that thing and if that thing is jeopardized, all hell breaks loose. How do we rely on nothing? Right? The entire spectrum of our lives, the chaotic lives, with all its spectacular joy, joyous moments and and suffering, right? Peace, conflicts, harmfulness, goodness, all of it. It all, if you look at it, it all goes down to that no basis upon which to rely. It all rises from nothing because it's not substantiated when it comes up. It becomes substantiated. We just make it up as we go along. You know, so when you look at Vimalakirti's description, right, how he, in his conversation with Manjushri, he arrived at this non-abiding basis in a way starting up top, like the 10th floor of our imaginary lives, houses, and he went down level by level to show us that this is not sitting on anything, this is not sitting on anything, and this is not sitting on anything, and then there is no basement. So everything you build in your mind has no basement, no foundation. At least not the way we think foundation is. And then Seng Shao describes the same thing but from the other direction. It's going from the zero point upward. And he says, because of non-abiding erroneous perceptions, because there is nothing there, we make something. Because of erroneous perceptions and discrimination, sorry, because of erroneous perceptions and discrimination, because of discrimination, craving, because of craving, there is a body. Since there is a body, there is good and bad, and both are set forth. Once good and bad are set forth, the myriad things arise. This is it. This is how we live our lives, within the myriad things, within the good and bad, within the likes and dislikes. This is not saying it's wrong. It's just saying, look at it and see what is at the basis of all that. Don't ignore it. Study it. It doesn't matter how, which direction we look at it. whether we begin from nothing or go back to nothing, it is at the root of our existence. So how can that which is completely free and unrestricted at its base, at its origin, give rise to our harmful discriminating consciousness? give rise to the mess. How can we feel so stuck and so held back while there is nothing that creates the solidity, 
that gives the solidity to this feeling. What do we do with this? You know, when, when you talk to people about this, often what you hear, when you, we talk to people about practice and how uh, skillful the practice is, in terms of what they experience, they often say, no, you have no idea what I'm going through. You're not in my shoes. Easy for you to say. Look at what I'm going through. Nobody ever in the history of humanity suffered like I suffered. Because we think we are the center of the universe. It all revolves around me, right? Of course. And my lifespan. Or we feel maybe practice is irrelevant to my life. Because of the way life appears to me. This is not a philosophy. This is not about someone else or something else. The words, the words can be tricky to us because the words can seem as if we're talking about, you know, when you read Seng Chao's writings, and it's a long time ago. You can try to change the words to fit the times, but the essence is the essence. So we have to learn to not get caught up in the language, but we have to understand that this language refers to us. That's why we have to look at what made Seng Chao say, say what he said. Right? He looked, he studied, he investigated. But don't take his words for it. And this is our practice, right? We practice together and alone, but alone. I mean, you know, think about the way we, you know, here in Sotozen, we bow twice, right? We bow to the cushion and we bow to the Sangha. We bow to our individual practice to give it power, to give it strength, and we bow to everybody else to thank everybody for being here to support my practice. Because you sit, you don't move, you breathe, and who knows what you're walking on? Who knows what's going to appear? We don't know. And most of it is on each of us to practice, to look at, to work with, to verify, to get to the root of. All the time, not just when we sit. Muddled by folly and craving, fanned by misleading influences, it surges and bellows. So, it's such a beautiful description of what we experience. Who doesn't experience that? Never stopping for a moment. That's the mind we work with. But is this what happens, or is it how we interpret what happens? 
And, and that, that chaos gives rise to speech that describes dissatisfaction, insecurities, feeling stuck, feeling blocked in all directions. It doesn't start with the words. It doesn't start with the actions. Ego, it starts way before that. Right? It starts with this chaos in the mind. But what gives rise to thoughts? Lord Yudwan once asked Master Yunju, where does rain come from? Yunju said, it comes from your question. It comes from your question. Before you ask, there is no rain. Yeah, but I missed it. Too late. Start again. Shut up and start again. It comes from your question. It comes from your thought about not trusting the rain. Not trusting things as they are. Not trusting being a part of, not trusting being it. Right? If all things come out of non-abiding basis, well, where else will, will rain come from? Other than the question. There's nothing there to begin with. So now where is the non-abiding basis? How do we get there? How do we arrive at nowhere? Being somewhere. And that's the question this monk is asking. Fayan Fayan says, form arises before substantiation. Names arise from before naming. And again, you know, those words are very heavy. They can sound very heavy, foreign, philosophical. But it is so relevant. Right? If we, it's so relevant to us. If we deeply understand, if we really understand that everything, we can think of everything we complain about, everything we're happy about, if we truly understand that all of it, arises before it has solidity. It has no solidity as such. It is unsubstantiated. From before arising and while it is arising. It doesn't become something. It just appears as substance. really understand that, it will tr completely transform our lives. But if we really verify it, I should say not understand, if we verify, maybe we won't get so fixated and so stuck with our challenges. Maybe we'll even know how to work better with our challenges. Right? Because no matter what happens, nothing stops. No one is blocked. All directions are wide open. 
no matter what happens. Because as solid as it feels, it's not. And if we really verify that, maybe we can bring a little bit more lightheartedness to this world, to this heavy, serious world we live in. Maybe we'll be more floating in it, right? More light-footed. But it comes up so quickly and it, and it traps us so quickly. The other day, I remember I was uh, saying goodbye to my daughter who was going to school. And I get up early, I, I make them breakfast, I take care of everything, lunch, and, and it was fine. And I was just about to say goodbye by the door, and she snapped. She was okay until that second. God knows what happened. I don't know what happened. Something. Probably the, the top did not match the shoes or something like that. Something to do with how will others look at me, or whatever, or maybe pressure from school. But obviously, some thought appeared in her mind, and that thought just completely grabbed her, totally grabbed her, and she snapped, and she was nasty. Not only didn't say goodbye, but nasty, let's put it this way. And uh, those of you who have kids understand exactly what I'm talking about especially if you have teenagers or had teenagers. And I just looked at it, you know, she was completely substantiating, totally wrapped up in it, totally giving it validity. And I looked at it, there was nothing I can do about it other than not substantiate this substantiation. Obviously, if I respond to it, for example, I could say, Look at what I do for you every morning, and that's how you treat me, right? That's the natural way of substantiating. Because, you know, I want something back. Or at least I don't want that in return. It's natural, right? But I kept it open, probably mostly because she left. <laughs> I don't know how long I was able to do it, but she didn't leave, but... It was a couple of minutes. But the point is that we, we get so stuck so quickly and then it becomes huge. And that huge thing can become much bigger very quickly. If we don't realize that although I feel stuck, I feel frustrated, there is nothing there at its basis. It's not that I don't feel this way. But that feeling has no basis. I think it's helpful to recognize that. I think it opens up a little bit something. And even if it does open up a tiny bit of possibility or other possibilities, so maybe we, we, we don't give rise to the thought by giving rise to words. Maybe that. And maybe we don't make decisions at that moment, if we can. Because we realize that Although it feels this way, it is no solid ground. We responded to something a minute before that, it was fine. All of a sudden, this sucks. 
How does this go from being great to suck in an instant? <laughs> uh, it's really, right? It's the same thing. There's a nice story about a monk who uh, once on, was on a pilgrimage and lay down in, in, to sleep in the field. I think it was dark when he arrived there. So in the middle of the night, he woke up with terrible thirst and he groped around and found a vessel with rainwater in it. He gulped it down quickly and was satisfied. And then he went back to sleep, feeling good. In the morning, he woke up, it was light, and he saw that what he was drinking from, he saw that he was actually laying down in a channel ground, right? And what he was drinking from was a piece of broken skull which still had some flesh in it, clinging to it. Thereupon, he started to vomit violently. <laughs> as soon as he named it, he got sick. As soon as he realized, it was fine up to that moment, but as soon as he realized, uh-oh. Yes, it sounds pretty bad. You can vomit just hearing about it. But in the middle of the night, when he was drinking, he was happy. Right? It's the same thing. But then something became something, or nothing became something. There was no thought at the moment of drinking. There was no conceptualization. It was just, I'm thirsty, here, water, drink, great, done. No, it says, form arises before substantiation, and the footnote says, do not hallucinate. Because that's what it is. And then, names arise from before naming, it says, the footnote says, what do you call it? Names arise from before naming. What do you call it? What do you call it? Because it, as essentially, originally, has no name. Great, we can give it any name we want. As long as we understand that we are naming it, and not ourselves. Because if we name ourselves, then something or someone is vested. When we name it, it wide open, stays open. Right? The forms, the feelings, the thoughts, all arise so fast. And yes, we do use names and labels. But if we don't solidify the label, or solidify the substantiation, or name the label, maybe we can see that all of it is reflecting non-abiding basis. We don't have to use that term, non-abiding basis. It sounds, again, abstract. But all of it is reflection of nothing. Maybe the word nothing sounds better, right? It sounds better than non-abiding. It's nothing. Nothing means no big deal. But no big deal does not mean don't look at your life, investigate what's going on, and address it in the best way possible. It's not there does not mean it's not there. Because we have to deal with it. 
Everything arises out of universal and unrestricted source. And everything is clearly manifesting that source. Or we can say, maybe in other religions, maybe we can say that everything reflects the divine. Everything arises out of the divine basis. God. All things are expression of divinity. Master Young Ming said, there is not a single name that does not broadcast the epithet of the Buddha. There is not a single thing that does not expose the reality body, Vairokana Buddha. Uchan, Vairokana Buddha. What is Vairokana? You remember that's uh, during ceremonies. When I give Jukai, I have to, there's a point that I chant, Nam Vairokana Buddha, sitting on the lotus flower. Vairokana Buddha represents the reality body in the physical manifestation of true wisdom as it appears in the world. The way wisdom appears in the world. And it is an appearance of that which is beyond appearance. And Vairokana is often depicted in a, as a central figure in a mandala of five Buddhas. Each of the other four Buddhas occupy one of the four directions in relation to the central image, and it represents different qualities of wisdom. Vairokana Buddha embodies all these qualities together, and usually painted in pure white to represent all colors. A very powerful image. Then there's a, there is a description, actually, a writing that describes Vairokana Buddha actually describing herself and her own attributes. She says, My very essence is original purity, while my nature is spontaneous presence. I transcend all levels, extreme and biases. I am not within the range of language or logic. I am not ensured as supreme emptiness by innate nature. I am not within the range of any scriptural authority or any brilliant reasoning. I cannot be portrayed by tantras or pithy instructions. I am not ensured by being contemplated. I cannot be analyzed through sublime knowing. There are no stages of approach and accomplishment to reach me. I am beyond all contexts of negative influences or home. I am completely me and all ordinary beings. And I am nothing but mine and all that occurs in mind. I am the multitude and I am singular. I am nothing but samsara and nirvana. I am sitting and lying down and moving about. I am life force and I am destruction. I think the last line is probably the most powerful and the most shocking. I am life force and I am destruction. Right? The logical mind doesn't know what to do with this. Are we practicing for the sake of goodness? Yeah. But what about 
all the horrible things we experience. Yeah, that too. I am that. You are that. Because it all arises out of nothing. When it arises out of nothing, it has no substance. It has no good and bad. It has no direction. There's nothing. Pure potential. Right? Pure potential. So, how can it be the multitude of all our expressions or experiences and all that occurs? How is it possible that pure wisdom, right? Vaidokana Buddha, pure wisdom is expressed in life-giving actions as well as harmful and destructive behavior. Isn't pure wisdom about goodness? You know, there's a statement in Judaism that I think shares the same similarities to this. It says, and I'm going to translate word for word, it may sound odd, everything is in the hands of sky and yet there is free will. Now the hands of sky means everything is not predetermined. It doesn't mean that. Everything is supported by nothing. Do whatever you want. Because nothing gives you the, nothing has the potential to do anything you choose. You, you want to mess your life up? Go ahead. You want to focus on goodness? Go ahead. It will not judge you. It will not reject you. It will not punish you. And it will not reward you. doesn't have that power. Or it has no concern about what you do with it. We can say the same about this planet. You know, if we are the planet, if we are none other than a manifestation of this planet, well, if we are destroying it, can we say that the planet is destroying itself? Maybe. Is it wrong? Who's judging? What if we do? What if this planet ends up destroying itself? Will the universe care? We care. But will the universe care? I think what's important here is, is that it's all wide open even when it doesn't feel this way. Which means we, we have the options, we have the opportunities, and we have the potential. And we can substantiate, and we do, but we can stop too. Right? We can stop and look at it. And look at the... the non-abiding principle we share, we all, with all things. <clears throat> Yunmen was once asked by a monk, what is the Buddha's teachings of all time, of a lifetime? Yunmen said, he teaches facing one. 
right? He teaches facing one. He's always teaching. It is always teaching. So the non-abiding basis, he is it. And it is he. Constantly teaching us that there is nothing upon which to rely. And again, that's the good news. There's nothing upon which to rely. How great is that? But we do have to rely on the time. So there's more that I have ready, but I think I'll keep it for another talk. So I'll just finish with uh, this poem by Sutung Spo. He said, the sounds of the valley streams are his long, broad tongue. The forms of the mountains are his pure body. At night, I hear the myriad hymn of praise. How can I explain what they say? How can I explain? How can I explain any of it? The conflicts, the, the, the pain, the suffering, the joy, the challenges. How can I explain it? How do I work with it? Let's work with that. So the one thing I, I, I would like to ask all of us, those who are here, those who are going to listen to this, watch out, be careful in the way you look at practice and the way you think about practice and what you do with it. And look at it and, and try to see the, the profound skillfulness of practice. Because it is profound. Because it is exactly what we need to see into our true nature. It's exactly what the world needs. So make nothing of it. Thank you.